Today, we're going to take a tour of the human body. I know that when I had my kids and they were young, they would ask me so many awkward and unknowable questions about their bodies. They wanted to understand why they weren't growing faster or why their mouth felt dry or how their throats swallowed food. And being the sort of literature person, the writing and history type person I was, I didn't have very good answers. So I started looking for books that had activities we could do that would help us understand our bodies, ways to do fingerprints or to build an eardrum or to consider how our eyes actually created the sight that we relied on every day. I wish so much that this book, Human Body Learning Lab by Dr. Betty Choi, had been around when I was homeschooling, I would have devoured it. Today's guest is the author, Dr. Betty Choi. She is a pediatrician with a Harvard education and two active, very curious, bright-eyed young children herself. She discovered that every day in her practice, children came in with an abundance of curiosity and parents were unable to satisfy those kids with meaningful answers about how their bodies work. Today, we're going to have a nice long conversation about how we can create the conditions for kids to get to know themselves, this home, this mobile home they'll live in for their next decades of life. These activities are practical, hands-on, and so much fun. I can't wait to do them with my grandchildren. So welcome, Betty Choi, and I hope you'll go grab your own copy of this book because I think you're going to love it. Hi, Betty. I'm so glad you're joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Julie. I'm so excited to chat with you today, too. It was really a delight to discover you. I appreciate that you let me have your book, uh, Human Body, a Learning Lab, take an inside tour of how your anatomy works. I was thinking back to when I was raising my five kids and they had endless questions about how their bodies work or what goes on inside uh, of their bodies compared to an animal's body. I wonder if you could just tell me a little bit about your experience being a pediatrician and your own children and the kinds of questions that come up about bodies from kids. Sure. You know, honestly, I think we all know that kids ask the best questions and they always keep us humble about what to, how to approach the topic and just thinking about new things that maybe we have taken for granted or haven't thought about in a while. So um, just my, a brief background about myself. I'm a pediatrician. I'm a mom of two kids and I'm also a former home educator. I part-time homeschooled my children for a few years and now they're in school full-time. And so I was inspired to write this book because during my, um, with all my experience with the kids, I had been looking for something that was um, not just kind of two-dimensional words on the page. I wanted something a little bit more hands-on that kids could actually do and experience while they were learning. And um, I, what I what I wanted in this book was also diversity as well in the images. There's a lot of really fun anatomy books out there, and I love the variety of illustrations I've seen. But I also wanted to see something that represented a little bit more closely. Uh, what people look like in real life on the outside and on the in, and on the inside. 
I love that. I felt that when I was reading your book and honestly, I was drooling over the activities. I really love embodied learning and I could tell that you did. You told me as we were getting started that critical thinking was a part of the way you thought about this book. And interestingly enough, I immediately tuned into the immune system. You have 13 different systems in the body that you explore. And one of them is about germs. Whenever I talk about my book, Critical Thinking, Raising Critical Thinkers, one of the things I like to talk to parents about is that critical thinking is not just politics and religion, right? It has to do with how we understand the way the world works, the choices and decisions we make for our own lives. And a lot of times I start right off with hand washing because a parent has this sort of assumed belief in germs that they've inherited from the authorities, let's say they're doctors mm -hmm. or science, and mm -hmm. then they are imposing that belief structure on a child who may not have the foundational knowledge to accept this directive of the parent. So a parent might say, you need to wash your hands. And your child says, I don't want to. And then the mm -hmm. parent comes down with the hammer of, well, <laughs> there are germs on your hands. And if you eat food and the germs get on the food, you'll get sick. And then I have to take care of you and you won't like it. So wash your hands. What is wrong with that strategy for getting compliance out of children in your mind? I know what it is in mine, but what yes. about in your mind? Yeah. So it's the, it goes back to that um, more of that old fashioned authoritative parenting style. You do this because I said so. It doesn't encourage kids to think about, well, why do we, why do we do this? Why is this habit helpful at times? And when can it be excessive? When is it not necessary? Or when can it be life-saving for other people? When can it be protective? So it's new, it's more nuanced than you just gotta wash your hands. And for in our family, um, for example, so our we have a child with severe food allergies. So washing hands is not even just about germs, it's also about making sure that we don't have potentially dangerous food proteins that our child can be exposed to. And when you understand, um, when you understand the reason, like, okay, my, my daughter, she doesn't want to wash her hands. She is, um, she's busy playing. She's doing something else. But when she's thinking, okay, I need to wash my hands, not only um, because I just went to the bathroom and that's kind of gross if you, if you don't wash your hands after that, but also I don't want to get my, I had cheese. I don't want my to, to put my brother in danger because I just touched something and then I don't want to, you know, potentially expose him to that. So having that understanding is so important for motivating us to do the right decision. I was wondering about that because part of what I know about kids, and this is what I love about your book, is that adults tend to reason with words and abstraction. But kids mm -hmm. actually need a tactile sort of hands-on experience for that same information to make an impact. You mentioned in the section on immune systems that we can show kids the power of soap through a hands-on activity as opposed to just washing away invisible invis germs. Could you share with us that little experiment that you suggested with soap? Yes. So this is one of my favorite timeless um, activities I remember from even my own childhood. And I just think it's so visual and powerful to see why not only do we rinse our hands, but using that extra soap makes a huge difference in getting our hands extra clean. Um, and I also have an experiment that I'll share uh, later on Instagram about comparing that with even hand sanitizer because sometimes people don't realize, oh, what's the difference between soap and hand sanitizer? So 
the experiment, all you need is water. Um, you can use black pepper if you don't have a, any intolerance to it. And um, just a dish and soap. That's it. Um, and then you can try this also with hand sanitizer. So you first put water and black pepper in a bowl. And then you stick your finger in it and you'll kind of see, does anything happen when I stick my finger in the bowl? And then you do the experiment again by putting a tiny bit of dish soap on your fingertip. And then you stick your finger just a little bit at the top of the water. And then it's just amazing to see kids' reactions to that. I've done this experiment with preschools and even older kids and teens. It's just fun to see the reaction for the first time when they've seen it. Like, wow, I can really see the black pepper flakes, which are supposed to represent germs, just scatter away because of the power of soap. So in the first example, does the black pepper sort of get drawn to your finger when you put it in? And then in the soap, the soap part of the experiment, it repels it. Is that what happens? So in the um, the first experiment when you just do water by itself not much happens some does get on the finger but yes the second one you can definitely see the drastic opposite happening that's really amazing and i feel like that's the kind of experiment that a child could own sometimes when we're explaining we think okay we're giving our child a really good reason to wash their hands or we're giving them a good reason to follow through on any of the safety measures that we try to instruct our children in we're just using words and for the child it's not making a meaningful connection to the way they reason because during those early years i'm sure you could say more about this than i can as a pediatrician but during those early years they're using their hands their mouths their eyes and their bodies to amass the information that they need. They're not using abstract reasoning, which is much more the way an adult interacts with the world. And so to meet a child and recognize when they say, I don't want to wash my hands, they're not rejecting information. They're just not yet capable of knowing why that instruction would make a difference in their lives. They haven't had to encounter the experiment, the research, the data for themselves. Yes. So whenever we can make that connection, it helps them actually do that critical thinking, right? Exactly. Yes. I think especially children, they use their five senses to learn. That's why they put things in their mouth right. before they realize, maybe I shouldn't do this. I can look at it with my eyes. I don't need to put that in my mouth. It's just a natural instinct to use all five senses to learn from a young age. And then over time, I think because kids get like you were saying, sometime over over life, kids are taught to kind of stay in place, to not explore as much with their senses, to kind of just, you know, kind of suppress that urge. But what I found, it's been really cool to even talk hear from parents and teachers who are reading the book. They're saying they're learning things that they never learned before when they were a child, and they can understand it more because they're they're doing, they're experiencing an activity about the body. Like for example, um, there's this very simple experiment about how the stomach might digest food and how you can see the acid happening um, in that experiment in the digestive system chapter. And the parents are doing that with their kids and they're understanding, oh, this is what happens. And it takes time for that food to get digested. It's not a very quick go through my body kind of experience. 
That's so true. In fact, one of the activities uh, that you talked about was testing a child's reflexes and you use a ruler and they're dropping something that they have to then catch quickly. And I immediately saw how involving it is for them to be able to do the measurement, to evaluate how quick their reflexes are, to have a body experience, not just tell them the information. You also had the kids build a facsimile of an ear, and then you invite them not just to listen, but to feel the sound vibrations. I remember building a model of the ear with my children using a cookie sheet and a tube for the same idea in order to experience the vibrations. How did you come up with these activities? I went through and I'm just mind blown. You've got models of the skin, layers of the skin with pipe cleaners and felt and all kinds of stuff. How did you create these activities? Because they're really genius. Oh, thank you so much. So some of them were one of those activities that get passed on through the generations, like the black pepper experiment. And then some of them were things that our kids and I came up together. So when we would talk about, you know, they would ask a question like, mommy, why, um, like, why does it, why do I have to pee, you know, right now? Like, and why can I hold it in sometimes? This is really simple question that our, my child asked. Um, and so I was thinking, well, what can we do to show this process? And sometimes they'll ask me, they'll, they'll hear me mention big words like kidneys or um, bladder. And what is that? What is that? So I was thinking, well, what are things in our house that look like these organs in our body? And then we kind of went through and we brainstormed, well, this water bottle is kind of shaped like a kidney. This bladder is kind of shaped like a kidney also. You just cut it a little shorter. And so with brainstorming together and encouraging their creative imagination, uh, that's how we came up with so many ideas that we could share with other people. That's so great. Uh, I really wondered if you had done these with your kids, but to think that they were actually a part of the process of creation is also really powerful. In fact, that's a nice invitation to our own audience to do these activities and interpret them with your children. They may use varying materials, right? They might not match the identical, but you're giving them a process that has a certain objective so that they know, well, this is what we're trying to achieve. Like I liked your... um, I liked your activity for the lungs, for example. I thought that was really brilliant. I haven't tried these yet. I have grandchildren, so I'm already imagining. Uh, <laughs> in fact, for Christmas, my granddaughter, who's just about to turn three, the gift she wanted from us was a medical bag. She's really into Doc McStuffins so on the Disney Channel, yeah. right? And so she yes. was taking our blood pressure and trying to listen to our hearts with a pretend stethoscope. Have you noticed your kids be very curious about treatment as opposed to just understanding? Yeah. So it's interesting that um, they come up with their own scenarios, but they also reflect their their play also reflects what they've experienced in real life. So they'll use their stuffies, they'll have their Legos, you know, go through a hospital scene or, yeah. or they're in school and somebody gets sick. It's really interesting and fascinating to watch them use play as their way of understanding the world around them. Yeah, for sure. Would you say that you've encountered some common misconceptions about the body from children, things that it would be good for parents to sort of be alerted to, like a a common way that a child misunderstands something about their body? That's a great question. So the first thing that comes to mind, actually, just thinking about our conversation this morning, um, 
my child hit two bites of his waffle and he said he was full. And I said, well, how do you know that you're full? And he said, well, I just kind of want to play with my toys instead. So, <laughs> so I loved his honesty. And I said, well, let's think about, you know, we have to eat breakfast before school because we want to make sure that we have enough energy for the day. But tell me what your body's experiencing. And so he said, well, we just had a holiday break and we played so much and I'm worried about not being able to play my with my toys as much. And it was just so adorable how um, he just felt really comfortable just saying that. Um, and then we went back to his body and we were talking about, well, how can you tell when you're hungry? How can you tell when you're full? And he said, actually, I did hear my stomach grumble and my stomach feels soft. Um, it's not like tight or sticking out, like, like bumped out a little more, like when I've eaten a lot. And so obviously this conversation was not as quick and, and tidy yeah, as yeah, I'm yeah, explaining yeah. it right now, but it was, um, it's just really endearing um, to hear him explore his thoughts and kind of recognizing, well, actually, maybe I am hungry, but I am also have these competing desires. My body's also feeling excitement and longing for some other activity at the same time. And meanwhile, at the same time, my daughter, on the other hand, she's like, I'm, I'm so hungry. I already <laughs> ate my entire waffle, but I'm still hungry. <laughs> you know, I really love that because. You didn't shame him or talk him into eating more or explain to him why play is not a part of his day the way it was during a school break. You invited him to go inside to investigate his own interior. The thing I share all the time in critical thinking is we want to invite people to collect their own data, to do their mm -hmm. own research, to evaluate their own experience. And so for him to recognize, and he wouldn't use this language, but he was subordinating his hunger to his desire to play. And one of the things we're trying to do when we're raising children is help them make the good assessment where they can take care of themselves, not feel like, well, I have to pretend like I'm not hungry to play. Like, is there a place in his life where both things can be in addition to school? And so yes. as a, a small child who doesn't have that agency yet, he can't just choose not to go to school He's mm -hmm. working with what he has available, which is, well, exactly. I won't eat so I can play. And I just <laughs> think it's so honest rather than shaming him about food or shaming him about play. Just beautiful. What a great, per a perfect example. <laughs> yeah. And our children just give us the best examples to think about. Like, just like we think about that ourselves too sometimes. Um, I forget to eat because I'm yes. so busy and, and Me meshed in my work. And then I've realized I'm a little more tired, a little bit cranky. I'm not able to focus as much on my work because I wasn't, I was suppressing my hunger cues because of my, my concern for work had kind of superseded that in the moment. It really carries these, these, um, the way we think about our body cues, it stays with us lifelong and it affects not just kids, but just us every day as well. And so I try to be mindful of that when I'm in my um, own parenting and when I'm talking about things I'm doing, because um, I can hear my kids sometimes wondering like, oh, um, how come mommy isn't practicing what she preaches, basically? <laughs> they they call you out on that. They catch you on that too. Um, and so I think it's just fascinating to have this exploration with our children. Can you help us understand where we've come through the worst part of the pandemic? COVID is still active. Can you help us understand how to acquaint children with 
an international health crisis or a health crisis that's in the family, like somebody gets cancer or there is a virus happening within your family or there is this global pandemic. How do we help children process that kind of information about their health when they don't have the breadth of experience and can't see it? They aren't seeing it up close and personal. They're hearing it third report. Yeah, I think that's such a great question. I think for us, um, I'm also married to a physician. So a lot of these conversations we have at home are probably just happening more often in our home just because of the nature of our jobs compared to other homes. But I think no matter what your background is, normalizing that conversation as a family is the foundation of knowing how to cope with bigger news and um, more complicated conversations. So things that we talk about every day will kind of I think just narrating like the reason we do things or trying to have those hands-on experiences to help our children understand. But also when we talk about like things our friends are going through, we try to, we try to invite that conversation like, oh, you notice that your friend was sick? You know, how did that make you feel? Or what kind of symptoms, what kind of um, things were bothering your friend? Um, or why did that make you uncomfortable that your friend was sitting next to you and coughing and sneezing very close to you? Like, why was that... Um, bothersome to you. Like we'll just kind of try to really be in touch with um, what they're thinking and encouraging them to share. Um, The other thing I think is helpful, um, just if you're not as comfortable with those conversations is having a book. um, I mean, not just human body learning, learning lab, but there's other uh, kid appropriate books that you can talk about um, just to kind of surround yourself you're ready to have that language. If you're not sure, you can say, let's learn this together. We can look it up together in this book. Um, Let's see, this system works this way. Okay, let's look at this picture. Okay, I'm learning too. It's never too late to learn. We can figure this out together or we can learn together. Um, I think the other thing that's just also really important to model for kids is having that humility that we are always learning. And sometimes we might be wrong. We could be, oh, you know what? I didn't realize that actually um, this food is unsafe um, for our friend. I didn't realize they were uh, had a reaction to it. Uh, I got to be more vigilant about checking the labels and be more mindful about what I bring around them. Or, you know what? I've been giving you this vitamin, but you didn't really need it. Sorry for uh, putting that pressure on you every day to take this. I didn't realize that was not a requirement. You're getting plenty of vitamins from your food. So it's kind of just being humble to to even say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. You didn't really Mm. need that. Or I'm sorry, I didn't realize I was putting my friend at risk by bringing some food. I think those are just such important um, uh, things that we can model for our children. Did you know it is the 23rd year anniversary of Brave Rider? I started this company in January 2000, which always tickles my fancy because that's why I remember the date. (laughs) It was so auspicious at the time. But it blows my mind to think about the literal hundreds of thousands of families that have been helped around the world by our Brave Rider program. It all started with a product I called the Writer's Jungle. And when I wrote it, I wrote it with this in mind. I was wondering how to help parents be able to teach their kids to write without inciting rebellion and tears. 
I didn't turn to educator manuals or textbooks or the way teachers teach writing. Instead, I focused my attention on how I had learned to write under my mother's guidance, who happens to be a professional author who's written more than 70 books in her professional career. What I know about writing is that those people who want to be paid for their writing learn in a completely different manner than how we were taught in school. In other words, when you go to a writer's conference, they don't talk to you about grammar and punctuation and spelling. They don't talk to you about formats. Sometimes they'll talk to you about the structure of a genre, like the structure of a novel or the structure of a nonfiction book, but they focus first and foremost on one single question, and it's this one. So what have you got to say? (laughs) Why should I care? In other words, the message, the meaning, the voice of the writer is primary. And the strategies that you learn when you are in these professional writing environments are oriented to putting you in touch with the insights you want to express, whether that's a story in the fictional world or it's a how-to book, or it's a memoir, or it's journalism. In other words, writing when you're a professional has to do with communicating a message first and foremost. We can slap on the format later. We can hire copy editors to ensure that the punctuation is accurate and the spellings are right. But what we can't do, the one thing we can't substitute for all that copy editing is the voice of the writer. There's only one person who can bring forth to the page the insights that are unique to the writer. So as I thought about teaching our kids, I realized that what worked best for me as a child and what was working well with my own five homeschooled kids was to help put them in touch with having something to say. I devised strategies that I thought would work well with kids. You know, this isn't an adult audience. So I understand that children are not yet fluent in the mechanics of writing, spelling, punctuation, grammar, and format. And yet, don't their ideas, their thoughts, and their insights deserve to be preserved and read by an interested audience? That's the foundation of my newly revised program called Growing Brave Writers. It's not available anywhere, but in the Brave Writers store, we will leave you a link in the show notes to make it easy to get there. This program will last you for years. Here's why. It is designed to be processes that you use more than once. So when we talk about keenly observing detail, you will use that whether your child is in a co-op or doing homework from school or trying to describe something beautiful in your house for a homeschool writing assignment. When we talk about free writing, that section of the manual will serve you in good stead all the way through high school. The revision strategies will eliminate pain, tears, and the feeling of failure that attends so much of the revision work that kids are used to in school. I invite you to take a look. We have a sample to download. And I hope that you will give your children the gift of a solid foundation in writing. Growing Brave Writers is the place to begin. Okay, let's get back to the podcast. 
You include in your book, The Reproductive System at the end, which I just thought was beautiful because by the time you get to it in the book, you're just looking at body systems. I know that talking about reproductive, um, the reproductive system, how to make babies, giving birth, all that stuff can feel pretty thorny to parents because it bumps right up against sexuality. But when you talked about reproductive system, even for me, as I was reading it, it felt as ordinary as digestion. Was that your intent? You did such a nice job with that part. Oh, thank you so much. I have to be very honest. I had had lots of sleepless nights over that chapter. (laughs) I believe it. My, um, some of my close friends were like, just skip it. Just avoid it altogether. You might get canceled. (laughs) And then other friends are like, I don't want to talk about it with my kids. You, you tell them what to say. You tell them through the book. (laughs) It's so funny that it just evokes such a visceral reaction in so many people. Yes. And so I really thought about how can we normalize that conversation? It is just like we have arms and legs. We also have private parts. We have reproductive parts. We all have genitals. And and it's an essential part of health and hiding it just feeds into that something's wrong or there's shame or I can't talk to anybody about it. And I just really wanted to emphasize with um, even families who are picking up the book and maybe they're feeling a little queasy about that chapter, you know, read through it first yourself if you're not sure. But there's also so much research that shows that when we normalize these conversations with our children, it's protective. It keeps them healthier and safer. Um, it protects them from potential abuse. Um, it, if they don't get this information from accurate, safe resources, they're going to find information on their own. The internet is just a tap away and their friends have access to the internet too. So we're just thinking about, would you rather have them have a solid foundation first or accidentally find out information that could be potentially incorrect or dangerous? I was thinking about it too, that there is a distinction between reproduction and sexuality. So for a young child, we're really just talking about the mechanics, the logistics, the way the body creates life, whereas sexuality is a whole other arena. And that is not really what you're talking about in that section. That is appropriate for, I mean, you you mentioned hormone changes and puberty and Mm -hmm. all of that, which I think Mm -hmm. is reasonable. But I, I feel like sometimes even for me, and I'll just be very honest and vulnerable here, I -hmm. found it difficult to separate those two. And I think that's why I was really enjoying reading your book. I was sort of the mom who got books for my kids to read. (laughs) Um, My mother had worked really hard to give me a very solid foundation in all of this information at a young age, and the schools did as well. And I found it weirdly embarrassing. So when I raised my children... I was sort of stuck between the embarrassment and the information. And I wonder how often you run into that. And if you have any advice to help parents over that hump, I, I mean, I'm just telling you, honestly, I, I do not consider myself a great role model for how to handle reproductive (laughs) teaching. I I love how we're talking about this. So honestly, so I'll say from a professional standpoint, I had no issues talking about it with my patients, but when it came to my own children, I think there's something, I think it's that generational, like it, it conjures up your own memories from childhood. And so my parents avoided anything down there, like the plague. Um, I think they told us, they literally told us Santa Claus 
brought us, like we were born because they made it, they asked for us for Christmas. We were just not <laughs> anything truth-based at all. So unfortunately, I did all, most of my learning through my friends or through things I heard about at school. And um, and just from uh, like, just from a health standpoint, I was like, I do not want to replicate any of that with my children. So I things that um, for anyone who's feeling uncomfortable because they had maybe a similar or more or more drastic upbringing compared to um, compared to ourselves, I think just practicing talking and saying those words in the mirror, feel that awkwardness, let the awkwardness pass through your body and then realize, oh, I said the words vagina, penis, testicle, vulva, it, I can say it. Nobody died when I said it. <laughs> I might feel weird and embarrassed and awkward, but I know I'm doing the right thing by teaching mm. my children the names of their parts, things that might happen to their body. I'm preparing them for the world. And it doesn't mean that they're going to be thinking about that all day long. It's they and though I think the thing that people often get surprised when they have these conversations for the first time, kids will be like, okay. That's nice. So what's for dinner? Like it's just <laughs> it's just like another it's not as monumental as it might feel for us for kids. It's like okay, it's just another thing that I'm doing today, you know. Um so I think parents might be pleasantly surprised about that and these conversations they are often in little pieces over time. Oh, you don't have to point. feel like you have to master the talk that very first time. You have lots of opportunities, especially if you if your child can sense that you are willing to open the door to have this conversation and you're not going to run away. Um, and even if you have run away in the past, you can come back. It's okay. You can be like, you know, I'm sorry. I felt uncomfortable with that conversation, but you were, it, you did nothing wrong by asking. It was just mm. something that I realized that um, I'm working with myself, but these are really important questions that you're asking. Oh, you have such a lovely demeanor. I'd like to mainline that. I know for myself <laughs> that you. part of what is uh, complicated is, especially in my case, I had five kids. So I had five kind of different reactions to that information. Mm -hmm. And I think you can get flooded as a parent. And so avoidance is so simple. And I didn't directly avoid. I did give information, but I was not the, the mom who sat them down at the table and opened the conversation. I was more reactive or more responsive than I was leading or initiating. And so I really love that your book gives that opportunity. One thing that I found um, interesting and also a little startling was at the end, you had the opportunity to make a model of a fetus out of Play-Doh. And I thought that was really beautiful. Honestly, I was pregnant so many times. It would have really been awesome for my kids <laughs> who were watching me gestate a baby, um, become aware of what the baby's size was over those months. And of course, out of the five kids, four of them got to witness a birth. I gave birth at home. So we did have those kinds of conversations about our sexuality and reproductive organs, which was really powerful. Have you made that fetus? Do you know families who've, who've done that modeling of the baby that's in the womb? I just thought it was really cool. You know, so far in the last two months, I've heard people doing every experiment, except I haven't heard people share about the the embryo Play-Doh yet. Embryo, <laughs> yes. But you know, that's one of my sons. That was one of my son's absolute favorites. He just thought it was so cute. He's like, oh, I have my little embryo. <laughs> and I think 
I've just, I, I've, I've shown my kids pictures on babycenter.com. You can see the different stages of, nice. of this, the development is fascinating. They go from just a tiny little bean to starting to form features and things like that. Um, it's just so fascinating because you don't get to see that with your, right. your own eyes in real life. So I think it's just so cool to show that yeah. process. And just giving them that tactile experience again makes it so much more real. It's not just the two-dimensional photos. So yeah, I really, I just love that. I thought you did such a beautiful job. So let's finish up this conversation talking a little bit about critical thinking in the body. You and I discussed that before we came on together. What are some of those points that you would really like to make for parents to consider. I know we talked a little bit about hunger and I didn't expect to get into that, but I noticed with my daughter-in-law, for instance, that the way she talks to her children about food is what is your body telling you? That is a common question she says to her daughter. And her daughter will a lot of times say what your son said, you know, I just want to play like she's not able to be in touch. And so then she will name, you know, is your stomach growling? Do you feel full? you know, what taste is in your mouth? Like she helps her explore. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yes. Yes. So I kind of think of it as thinking exercises in, um, I would say three different ways. So the first one I would consider, um, and these are all kind of mindfulness exercises as well. So the first one is thinking about just our physical body. So listening to our body's cues and what distractions might be getting in the way is, the TV on in the background? Is there music on in the background? Is there another child yelling in the background? Um, what? And if we're able to kind of tune out those distractions, just asking questions like, how do you, how do you know when you're cold? Like, what do you notice in your body? And letting the kids kind of just look at their hands and say, huh, the color's a little bit different right now. Or I see the little hairs on my skin standing up. Um, I feel goosebumps. It's a little, a little bumpy. Or how do you know when you're thirsty? Like just taking that time to think about physically, what do you feel in your mouth? What do you feel in, in other parts of your body? How do you know when you're tired? Are you rubbing your eyes? Are you yawning? Is your body slowing down? Uh, so using observation as your teacher for those questions, it's really, it's really having that chance to think and just slow down and, hmm, I have answers right in front of me. I can figure this out. And then the second exercise is just thinking about our emotional health, our mental health. And so, um, and I love that this conversation is just kind of kind of trending everywhere. People are kind of being more aware of, of how they their face might look um, because of different emotions or how their body might react. So, okay, you're feeling nervous. What do you feel in your body? Like, how do you know you're nervous? Is it because your heart rate is beating up faster? Is you feel your muscles tensing up? Are you are you feeling a little bit sweaty? How do you know you're excited? Like your body feels just more free. Like just kind of having those conversations and giving them a chance to answer. And if if they're not sure, if maybe if it's too open ended, you can model what you notice in yourself as an example, so that maybe they can notice um, how they are how their mind and body connect um, in other emotions. So I, I really like um, that one also because um, I think especially these days, people are understanding more of how their mind it can affect their physical health. So when we are super stressed out, we may get a stomach ache. It's not because we actually have a primary stomach problem. It's because 
our mind is causing us to just feel so tense that it's affecting like the way our stomach is producing acid. It's really fascinating how our body or how our thoughts can affect our mind. Um, And then I think with the thinking about um, emotions, also using that opportunity to look at each other. How do you know mommy is a little bit upset? How do you know daddy is feeling stressed out? What on their face is telling you that? Or sometimes they might look happy, but are they feeling, does their body match what they're feeling on the inside? Sometimes it doesn't always match. Or sometimes you can feel multiple things at once. So that's the second exercise I kind of like doing. Um, kind of not necessarily as a set down lesson, but just sometimes a casual conversation. Like, oh, how do you notice that? Like, why do you think that it's like we were talking about at breakfast this morning? And then the third exercise that, um, and this is more of the action stuff, like the doing, like, why do we do the things we do? And like we were talking, why do we wash our hands? So critical thinking about our actions, like just thought, being thoughtful rather than just impulsive or being, um, or just doing a habit out of a habit. Like, why do we do the things that we do? Um, and so this one always makes me crack. I'm using my son as a lot of the examples just because he's <laughs> inspiring me today. But his he's he's just in the phase where he doesn't want to wear pants. <laughs> we live in California, so it, he can get away with it most of the time. And he'll say something to me like, my body, my body says no to pants. <laughs> so said, adorable. Why? why does your body say no to pants? Um, and so he said, well, I don't like the itchiness. I don't like the way it's like... Um, it feels constrictive. It feels uncomfortable. It's like his six-year-old words. Um, but I can see that he's not feeling as free as he might feel in shorts. Um, and then my daughter was, why do we need to wear clothes? Why, why can't we change in front of the window? These are really great questions. And so um, it gave us an opportunity to talk about culture. Like some cultures are actually much more comfortable with walking around naked. And that's what they do. Or maybe because the climate doesn't allow them to cover up because it's just, it's it's too extremely hot to wear um, um, a full coverage clothing. And then sometimes it could be religious. Sometimes people want to cover everything. And so this just sparked just wonderful discussions. Um, and then, you know, so in addition to clothing, you know, just why do we have to eat? We talked about that at breakfast. Yeah. Why do, do we I have really to brush to teeth? Right. Why do we have to brush teeth? Yes. Um, <laughs> all the questions that our kids always ask. And then, and then just inviting them to think about like, okay, so you have these choices for food. Why are we choosing this food over that food? Which one's going to fuel my body more? Which one's fun food for now? Which one's going to, um, uh, which one might seem more tasty, but which one might be more nourishing in different ways. Just questions that we can ask. And there's not necessarily always a right answer. And I think that's the important thing to teach our kids is what do you notice yourself? And then um, what do other people feel? I like wearing pants, you know, like, for example, (laughs) compared to my son. (laughs) So I just think it, it can turn into just really fun discussions and brainstorming and who knows where it might lead to. Yeah, I like the framing of this. It's not, it, it really matches my ethos of a big juicy conversation where there is no mm-hmm. outcome that you are trying to guarantee. You're not trying to steer or direct or manipulate your child to a conclusion, but you are expanding the options of of how they think about that topic, yes. by giving them the knowledge you have or the cultural piece they don't have, or even just allowing them to react to that you know, people in our culture wear pants in the winter more than shorts. 
Do you agree or disagree with that? How does that mm-hmm. impact you to think about that? We live in California. Do you think kids in Alaska can get away with that, right? Like <laughs> that allows them to expand, to include the possibility of other viewpoints. A lot of times we get very uh, narrow in our focus. We're trying to get our one child to think one way. When if you open up and expand the conversation to include other ways and other people's perspectives, your child can see themselves as one among many. And it helps reduce some of that direct tension that occurs when it's a power dynamic rather than a conversation. Yes. Yes. And I think encouraging these discussions, this is building autonomy for them too. When you're critically thinking, you're learning how to take care of yourself. So my son, uh, we came up with this conclusion on colder days, he would wear his soccer socks and that would cover his, the lower part of his legs and keep him warmer. And that's, um, that's working right now. And yeah, isn't that amazing? Yes. And that's right. You're brainstorming for a solution and the solution is unknown. I think that's the difference between manipulation and an actual conversation. If the, if the, decision has already been made, then the conversation's an illusion. But if you are troubleshooting and problem solving together, then you're going to have an unknown solution at the start of this conversation. You'll gather the data, the information, you'll experiment. You'll see if you can try a part of the child's suggestion, not just ignore it. I do remember having a conversation with a mom from Alaska, though. She said, you know, the common parlance with parents is if your child says, I don't want to wear a jacket, let them go out and get cold, and then they'll discover they need it. She said, in Alaska, that's a life or death question. They're going to wear a coat if they're leaving the house. (laughs) And so one of the things that I think is really important is that we ourselves know the difference between life and death. Because a lot of times we treat things that are not life or death, wearing pants in San Luis Obispo, (laughs) (laughs) as a life or death decision when it actually is not. And yet at the start of COVID, washing hands felt like it might be. And so we want to reserve some of that authority for those moments when our kids cannot imagine or comprehend. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. So um, I might sound like I'm very, very free and very permissive, but I always tell my children safety first. Mm. Safety is the number one thing. So uh, we had talked about um, if we travel to New York to visit family or Pennsylvania or other cold places, we can't just wear shorts even if, if we want to. Of course, we want to be as comfortable as possible, but safety first. And we talked about um, frostbite and how this can be extremely dangerous for uh, certain settings, certain climates, um, but also safety first. So um, my child doesn't want to sit in his car seat. Well, we're not leaving the house till you buckle up. Right. I can't let you do, I can't let you go wherever you want to go. I can't take you there until we're in a safe situation. Yeah. I remember wearing your helmet, biking and things like that. Yeah. Right. So I remember early on in Brave Rider, I had a student who was having to receive stomach injections. It was some kind of vitamin that he had to get for whatever his disease was, which I don't remember at the time. And they were extremely painful. And his father had to do these every single night and, and they had to be done. Like no amount of conversation was going to prevent this action from happening. But imagine being a father who had to give these injections and his son would cry and cry. And what was really fascinating is inside of our writing class, we had this opportunity for them to keenly observe an experience and then write about it. And the child chose to write about these deeply painful injections. 
He explored all of his five senses, all of his thoughts, all of his imagination, and put it into writing. It it moved me to tears. And the father told us on the back end that just putting it in writing had relieved some of it, just that little bit, like he hated them so much. But having the opportunity to give full expression to how much he wished this wasn't his life actually supported the activity of taking the injections instead of distraction, talking him out of it, shaming him into it, holding him accountable. So I just wanted to throw that out as well. Your approach really facilitates that kind of of love and support for the full embodiment that we're talking about, right? So even a child who doesn't want to get in a car seat, there's reasons, there are feelings that can be held in the space of safety absolutely. first, right? Yes, absolutely. Validating is so important. I know you don't like being strapped in. I don't really like it either. I, I understand that. But I also want to get you there safely. Yeah. Um, I have this conversation. My daughter um, has eczema. She hates putting on Vaseline or lotion. She hates that sticky feeling. But her skin will be open and raw if she doesn't. So it's safety first. I know you don't like it. It's icky. Yeah. It's sticky. You, val- you hear you. You want to validate. You want to hear that. You you hear that uh, what they're saying. And so working t- together on the solution. How can we make? How can we make this less painful, but yes. also keep this keep you safe? Yeah, that's. Uh, I always think we we miss the opportunity to say two things. One is, how do you wish it were? Just let them say out loud. I mm-hmm. wish we never had to use car seats. I wish I didn't have to have these injections. I wish I didn't have eczema mm-hmm. because. A lot of the energy that the child is feeling is suppressing that yes, that wish. Exactly. So let them express the wish and then let's brainstorm how to make this Absolutely. as least mm-hmm. painful as possible. And I'm sure as a pediatrician, you're doing injections and treatments all the time, children with cancer, whatever. And this is a very big part of your practice and bedside manner, isn't it? Being able to support children in those crises. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So important to to really listen, validate, and brainstorm together. Yeah. Betty, thank you for this beautiful conversation. I feel like it's just going to provide so much reassurance and support to parents. I just want to say again, this Human Body Learning Lab book, especially for homeschoolers, this is like a semester unit study. Like You could just focus (laughs) on the body. This would be your science. What age range would you recommend this for? I feel like even some of my middle schoolers would have totally been into it. What do you think? That's such a great question. So I always, because I just feel like people, whenever people ask about age range, about any recommendation, I always get queasy because I don't think people fit nicely into, you know, a specific grade. Um, And my kids go to a school where there's no specific grade, there's ranges. Ah. And so I kind of apply that to this book too. So the reading level technically is grades three to seven, but I've had kids as young as four, actually I think two and a half (laughs) and up to 15 reading this book and enjoying it. And I've had a lot of parents say they're having a blast reading it with their children. Yeah. That's also the secret of all homeschooling parents. We all want to do the activities even more than our kids. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. (laughs) Oh no, it's for sure a thing. Like once you get a book like this, you'll be like, how can I build an ear? You know, that's exactly what's going to happen. So just indulge. Yeah. We had so much fun when we were homeschooling before with these experiments and brainstorming together. 
<laughs> and absolutely after school weekend activity, pull in the other yes. parent. I mean, I really yes. highly recommend it. Betty, where can we follow you online? So um, currently I'm trying to kind of minimize my social media time. But um, when I pop up, I'm at Dr. Betty Choi, D-R-B-E-T-T-Y-C-H-O-I on Instagram and Facebook. Um, my website is the same, Dr. Betty Choi, D-R-B-E-T-T-Y-C-H-O-I. Um, dot com. <laughs> and I also have a new website um, that I'm working on. It's humanbodylearning.com. And I will have more uh, printable activities, supplemental um, uh, discussions on there that are all kid-friendly and hopefully very accessible for families and schools everywhere. That's fabulous. I'm so grateful that you took the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Well, I hope you are racing to your local bookstore to pick up a copy of Human Body Learning Lab. By the way, I don't get any commission off of any of these promotions. I am just so eager for you to have the adequate tools you need to have a fantastic life of learning with your kids. And I am completely convinced that the activities in this book could easily cover a semester or a whole year's worth of science with your kids in elementary and junior high school. So I hope that you will click the link in the show notes and pick up a copy of this book. Thanks for joining me today, Betty Choi, if you're listening. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. I'm always so grateful to have you along for this fabulous ride. I want to let you know that something new is coming in February. We are having a change in this podcast that is so powerful and good, and I cannot wait to share it with you. So do not miss the first episode in February because you are going to be blown away. I know you are. All right. Thanks, everybody. So glad you tuned in today. Hey, Brave Rider listeners. We have another five-star review, and this one comes today from Cove2196 titled, I So Needed This Episode Right Now. Thank you for this. I have a brilliant eight-year-old who is curious about everything in the world and is always building and designing and asking big, juicy questions. But as soon as I open a textbook and try to teach him what I'm supposed to, he completely shuts down. I'm in the midst of rethinking my year, and I think this will help. As always, Julie's podcasts come right when I need them. Thank you to Cove2196. Today's episode was produced by Nova Media with support from team members Jeanette Hall and Natalie Miele. I'm Julie Bogart, author of The Brave Learner and Raising Critical Thinkers. I'm also the founder of BraveWriter.com, an innovative approach to writing instruction. You've been listening to the Brave Writer Podcast. Until next time, keep going. Think well. I'm rooting for you.